0: Ryan Miller and for the past 15 years have helped hundreds of people to raise millions of dollars for their funds and for their startups. If you're serious about raising money, launching your business or taking your life to the next level, this show will give you the answers so that you too can enjoy your pursuit of making billions. Let's get into it. As founders and fund managers, we are stewards of sensitive information. We know that and so do the hackers. But did you also know that startups and investment funds are some of the most targeted companies for these hackers? So in this week's episode of Making Billions, I bring on my dear friends Matthew Carr and David Williams from Adam Cell. These guys support fund managers to secure their data, lower their risk, and prevent you from massive litigations from these attacks. Securing your operations while outsmarting the criminals are all critical skills we need in our pursuit of making billions. Let's get into it. Hey, welcome to another episode of Making Billions. I'm your host, Ryan Miller. And today I have my dear friends, David Williams and Matthew Carr from Adam Cell. Matthew and David are cybersecurity experts at their firm, Adam Cell. They help founders and investment funds to protect themselves and their investors from catastrophic losses from hackers and data breaches. See, Matthew holds a national security clearance where he helps to protect critical infrastructure of entire countries against some of the most vile threats out there today. So what that means is that Matthew and David understand what can cost you and your company's billions in losses and how to fortify you against one of the largest cybersecurity threats today. So David, Matt. Welcome to the show, fellas.
1: Hey, Ryan, it's great to be here. We love the show and always uh, am entertained by it, but you also learn something too. And I was really enjoying some of the recent episodes and I I won't give all the secrets away, but uh, Fred Carey really impressed me with his secrets. Well, it's certainly a
0: pleasure to have you guys and thank you. You're very kind. Yes, the show's done very well and it's because of brilliant guests like you and you mentioned Fred and many of the others that have gone before. I've been so, so impressed with everything that you guys have done with Adam Cell and securing national security threats, but still bring it home to the entrepreneurs, the founders, and even in Emerging fund managers. If there was ever a group that gets targeted, it would be anybody that deals with money, and especially new companies, emerging funds. Those things tend to be highly targeted. I get spam and phishing emails all the time. That's probably light stuff compared to what you guys deal with. We're going to get into that in a minute. But before we do, maybe you can walk me through how did you guys even get into this industry? How did you become experts?
2: Well, thanks for having me, Ryan, and uh, very kind of you to call me an expert. I guess others might agree with you as well, but. I've been doing security professionally for more than 12 years now, but it's always been a passion of mine going right back to school. I remember uh, disabling the parental controls so we could browse the web freely. And I was quite lucky. I went to a school that we got taught programming and this back in the 90s. So some schools don't even know that today. So I got an early start. My mum was in the movie industry and she had one of the first MacBooks with Clarice Works, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I got good internet access early and my interest has been there ever since. I published a lot of research in the areas of cyber terrorism, sort of attacks on physical equipment, physical infrastructure, even relating to things like economic terrorism. And also like novel research around areas like penetration testing and red teaming and presented those, all those sort of large cyber conferences like DEFCON, B-Sides, and more. Yeah, I do, in fact, protect critical infrastructure against threats. We call it adversary simulation. So my job is to go in there and basically pretend to be a bad guy and and test the defenses that the good people have set up. That work has led to the discovery of a couple of zero days that affected national security. Hopefully, these countries that I've worked with are all the more safer for it.
0: Wow. So... Alls I heard is you're a modern day superhero. That's phenomenally impressive. So thank you so much for the work that you've done. But that's only half the story, David. You're equally a, a rock star, and your work has gone on to help get Matthew's expertise into the business world. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your role at Adam Cell and, and how you became an expert.
1: So thank you, Ryan. Luckily, I had a bit of a head start on Matthew since I was born about 20 years earlier, and my mom didn't have a, a MacBook or and she wasn't on the internet because neither one of those things existed when I was getting started. <laughs> but I did get my start actually fooling around with uh, with computers back in the mini computer and mainframe era. And I had a job actually at a hospital, a VA hospital working over the summer and did some of the first programming on decision support for diagnosis of patients. So had my start working with technology and healthcare. Went on from there, did consulting, went to Harvard Business School, worked for Boston Consulting Group on technology and healthcare. And in particular, started my own healthcare consulting firm back about 20 years ago or so. And then Matthew and I teamed up when uh, one of his associates contacted me to say, hey, we scanned the whole internet. And did you know that the most vulnerable organizations in the world are hospitals in the U.S. And I said, you know what? They're vulnerable. They're lousy customers. You know who's a better customer? private equity firms, and other financial managers. That's how we got together.
0: Wow, that is phenomenal work. And I know me and all my colleagues and even people listening in 100 countries around the world are certainly grateful to know that there's guys like you that are working hard to secure funds. I mean, there's a lot of impact, both in the upside and the downside when it comes to private investments. And regardless of whatever direction your startup or your fund goes, if there are people who are waging some attacks on your company, trying to steal customer data or worse, some capital, just know that there's guys like uh, David and Matthew and Adam Cell who are there securing that. Now, that being said, maybe you can walk us through a little bit of Cell, your company, and how it relates to the private equity and startup world.
1: You know, Ryan, you said something very important back there about cybersecurity being both the downside and upside, interestingly. Most people think just about the downside, which is, hey, what if I get hacked? Somebody steals my money. I, I, you know, Somebody's going to do a competitive espionage on me. But there's actually, in this day and age, an upside to it, which is that data privacy And cybersecurity are things that people want to know. They want to know, I'm working with an organization that is actually protecting my data, and they're very aware of it. And so it's not just a downside, it's also a possibility to build great value. What we do is work with private equity firms, in particular in the middle market, who are now seeing this as very important to them. They're finding, first of all, as as you said, that they're right in the middle of anybody that wants to be a scam. So we can go where the money is. The portfolio managers want to deal with this, but when their limited partners come and say, hey, what's the what's the cybersecurity posture of your portfolio companies? They say, I don't really know. I have no way to measure that. So we actually help them look at cybersecurity across the entire portfolio, find the vulnerabilities, make those remediations, track and report progress, and stay ahead of emerging threats.
0: Thank you so much for that and the work that you've done. Maybe you can walk us through a little bit of how you help PE firms or even any firm, really, to find vulnerabilities. Walk us through a little bit of what you do and what people can expect to to get someone like you or anybody in this industry.
1: Well, the most important thing to know is that we bring something called the hacker's perspective. A lot of approaches to cybersecurity are based on compliance, a checklist. Here's all the things to go through. Well, guess what? The hacker, who's the one that you really have to worry about, they don't have a checklist. They don't have a scope of work. And I'm going to let Matthew explain what we actually do there.
2: Yeah, so thanks, David. As David said, you know, hackers don't care about policies. They don't care about checklists. They don't care about certifications. There's a saying in sort of red teaming and and adversarial work, and that's by any means necessary. And so that really does encompass our approach. We take an impact-based approach. So we look at where the impact of the business is. But first of all, as David said, we start with a hacker's perspective. So that's if someone just has your domain name or they have a company name, what can they find out? So our scanner starts by looking at all the open data, data leaks, stuff on the darknet. Picking all that stuff up, that's where we find passwords, that's where we find leaked documents. And in fact, the scans that we've done have helped, uh, I, I can't name names here, but have helped some very large companies identify data breaches before they were even aware of them themselves. Part of that scan identifies infrastructure. We commonly, the companies we work with, find things that they didn't even realise they had online. So that's a key part of it as well, like what, what is exposed, what is out there. That includes systems that we were told were developer-only systems, but were in fact available to anyone with an internet connection Once we look at that and we've mapped everything, uh, all the information tied together, then we basically look for vulnerabilities within those things, which can be known and unknown. We also look for poorly configured systems. An interesting sort of takeaway from my experience in red teaming and pen testing is everyone talks about vulnerabilities and vulnerabilities are given IDs. So if anyone's ever got an email that says CV 2023, this uh, something affects something else. I can actually count on one hand, the amount of organizations that I've breached using known vulnerabilities. Uh, the, The larger the organization, you would typically always find a poorly configured server. And in fact, that's actually often more fruitful because if you've got one bad configuration, then it's likely you're going to find many more deeper within that. So our scanner also picks up things like uh, the configuration side of stuff. And usually during that stage, we find a lot. Then we typically go on to an internal scan. Once all the outside's cleaned up, we will say that there's no point looking at the inside if there's a way in from the outside. And once those are buttoned up, then we can look at the maturity roadmap. Because really, another thing that's worth getting across is security isn't like a point in time. It's not a badge. It's not a medal. It's not a certification. It's a it's a way you operate. It's a way you think. It's a way you defend and protect and that, sh- that needs to be ongoing as your business changes. Unless you have a business that literally does nothing new, doesn't even change anything when you go into work, never sends an email, never makes a call, then sure, you don't have to worry about it and keep up to date with it. But that's not how things work. And things do change. And so you actually really want to look where you're at on a maturity scale and always keep pushing that forward.
0: Yeah, I love that. And you know, often in private equity, venture capital funds, even startups as well, we're stewards of some very sensitive information, which inherently brings a little bit of risk. Now, the go-to thing that most of us, whether you went to business school or not, intuitively, you would say, Well, if I've got risk, I will get some insurance policies to protect that risk. However, insurance companies know the more the risk, the higher the premium. So my thought here is that perhaps those people that want an insurance wrapper around their company, their fund, or their portfolio of companies that they hold within their fund, my assumption here, keep me honest, fellas, is that your work will also not only reduce risk, but probably reduce insurance premiums, giving a higher valuation profile likely that's up to the market. But have you seen that your work on improving downside risk also helps companies to improve valuations and risk premiums?
1: Ryan, one of the things we do, we call it insurance readiness scan. Mm -hmm. And so what we'll find is that the insurance companies will most of them use at least some sort of a questionnaire. Some might also use a more primitive version of the sort of scanner that we have. And so we'll help a company get ready for their insurance negotiation by doing the scan ourselves. We'll say Mm -hmm. the insurance company is going to ask you these questions. They may do this type of a scan. And so we actually do, first of all, feasibility scan to make sure they can, they're in a good spot before they put that application in. They help them clean things up and do the insurance readiness scan so that they are ready to go out to the market. So what it does is it enables them, first of all, to be able to get cyber insurance, not to have so many exclusions, and potentially, depending on the carrier, to get better premium as well. Now, over time, that does translate into a higher valuation for the company. And that's where, to go back to the point about uh, upsides and downsides, the upside is that if you are an organization that can demonstrate that you are keeping data safe on your customers and your vendors and your partners, you're going to be more valuable in this world. So we do see this happening. My job is also to simplify, to take all the technical wizardry that Matthew and his team come up with and translate it very simply. Whether or not you understood everything that he said before about what he does is one of the things that a hacker thinks about is if there's a misconfiguration, they can go and say, your computer is my computer, which means that they can do whatever you could do with your computer and actually, frankly, more because they know what they're doing with it better than you.
2: Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: AI is changing the game of business. Will you be on the winning team? I'm Jordan Wilson, the host of the Everyday AI podcast, and your coach to help you learn the X's and O's of AI. Artificial intelligence isn't just a new player in the game, it's a new sport altogether. So if you don't quickly put AI into play, your competitors will run up the score. I've spent my whole life building winning teams, from coaching basketball to working with big players like Nike and Jordan Brand. My next move, helping you win with everyday AI. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or on everydayaipodcast.com. Let's tap into AI together and put points on the board.
2: Yeah, and I would just like to add to that, Ryan, something that might be interesting for your listeners is like why that's changed in the cybersecurity insurance industry. That's because like when they first offered cyber insurance, they, they would look at things like, you know, like act of God or Captain event. Right, something that would that would potentially harm the insurance firm or the underwriter. And so they looked at cyber attacks like they're gonna be siloed, like it's gonna be attack here, it's gonna be attack there, we're gonna pay out here, we're gonna pay out there. It was actually the not petra ransomware, which changed everything, right? That hit Merck, that hit some of the big names that you know brought companies to its knees because that really opened their eyes to actually we can have one malware that becomes a capital event through loads of tiny hacks that, that compound together and create that same issue. So, so they're a lot more aggressive on that. That said. Is potentially a controversial view, not all things insurance brokers ask you to do for your insurance policy actually makes you more secure. And I'd argue I've seen I've seen uh, things they ask you to do that actually create risk. Um, So just bear in mind, I think there's actual security, things that are actually going to make you more secure. There's compliance, and those two aren't synonymous, right? And then there's the insurance requirements. The compliance and insurance requirements are important, but if you really care about security, it's the first one you should focus on whilst you're doing the other two activities alongside. Wow, well said.
1: Ryan, before we leave this insurance topic, I can't uh, help but tell you a a story, uh, which is that sometimes the portfolio managers add value by negotiating insurance on behalf of their portfolio companies or they'll bring in a a group and and get more attention that way. So one of the things we've seen hackers go after is the private equity firm itself and say, instead of looking at 35 different companies in the portfolio separately, why don't I go and find the one master list that shows what is the cyber insurance limit on the policy for each one of the companies? And then I know as a hacker, I can go and ransom each of the companies for their insurance limit. That's happened. And that is a case of not adding value if you are a private equity firm.
0: Oh my goodness. So they're smart in many ways. Uh, The evil geniuses behind hacking you, they are able to back into the market economics of how much they can scam you. One of the things that I've noticed in investment funds is there's one clause where people can Pierce the veil of protections through an LLC and a limited partnership. And that is typically in the fund world, is something called gross negligence. Now, my assumption, keep me honest, but my assumption here is if there is something in your company, a risk, for example, that you either knew and knew about it and didn't do anything, or you should have known about it and still didn't do anything, it could be argued that you were grossly negligent. Now, that I would say, some people could argue that your lack as a fund manager or an entrepreneur, I mean, relatively larger entrepreneur in a company, I would argue. That some people can take a run at you for saying you should have known or you did know and you didn't do anything about cybersecurity risk. So my assumption is all of this wonderful stuff that you've done, one of the biggest things, at least in my brain, is that you help to protect emerging fund managers and entrepreneurs against that gross negligence claim that if something happens, they can't pierce that corporate veil and come after you personally. Would you agree?
1: Yes, I would agree. So so when you think about the term you know, due diligence, someone's making an investment, they need to be diligent. They need to do it in, in a way that's going to be uh, professional. And covers the bases. Cybersecurity has become part of due diligence. Some of the things that we find are, for example, the CEO of a company that's being acquired or is going to have an investment made in it. They may use their company email on some third-party account that was hacked, and we find their password on the dark web. And the password might be something like password, where the password might be the name of their company. Very commonly, their you know, entrepreneurs are proud of their company. So I'm not a lawyer, but I would say that if you go and you are investing in a company where the CEO has his work email leaked and is using the password of the company name, and you knew about that, or you could easily have found that because we found it, that would be something that that would be questioned. That's just one example.
0: Wow. So this is very serious stuff that you guys are able to help. Now, I'm just wondering, with all of your vast experience and industry experience and knowledge in hacking and, and helping people to protect themselves against people like that, maybe you got two or three things that you can give our listeners around the world. Maybe help them understand the importance of it. What are some of those deep analysis things that you can provide for our audience?
2: Okay, so I'll start with a technical one. I'll give you a big win for an organization. A quick tip for people that are actually managing billions or large amounts of money. My biggest advice would be use a dedicated device. Use a device that's updated regularly that you don't install third-party apps on and that you literally just use for banking, for financial transactions. Yeah, that would be my biggest takeaway is dedicated device does so much because it adds so much complexity. If you want to go one step further, if you use an Apple, uh, well, if you use like a, a regular PC, then, then get an iPhone, right? Because they're different operating systems. They talk different languages. So dedicated device for that. But if you're an organization or you, you own one and are in charge of making sure it stays secure, my biggest win would be preventing computers to communicate to each other internally. So like 10, 20 years ago, we relied on these file sharing features of operating systems like on Windows. You've got the little thing in the tab on the side of your file browser. that says network and you can see other computers in there. Uh, If you have been to a hotel or something, you can see the risk in that because you click the network tab and you see other people's computers and you see the files that are unknowingly sharing with everyone on the network. And that's just one side effect. But it really sitting behind that is the ability for the computers to communicate. And that's really what powers that things like that file sharing on Windows. So if you limit that, you're going to pretty much kill ransomware in its tracks, not through some fancy expensive solution, just purely from the fact. it might infect one computer but it's not going to be able to go anywhere except back out to the internet right so it's it's ransomware literally works by infecting another host and another one and and propagating throughout your network and the way that it does that is by abusing these features of operating systems that allow computers to talk to each other on a network on a local network and you're also really going to eliminate 80 to 90 percent of other attacks because again if i get onto a computer and i can't talk to anything else then you've really got to be lucky to have landed in the one that has the keys to the kingdom, right? Like the database passwords or keys. Most of the time, the campaigns are gonna come in through a department that aren't necessarily paying attention to that risk. I, you know, I hate to single them out, but it, I see it all the time. The marketing department, right? They're used to signing up for loads of services. They used to try new platforms, so they get a lot of emails. Sneaking one into them is often a vector that works, right? They love to click on stuff. That's basically what they want. They want clicks, so they used to click Whereas, you know, other departments, sort of more experienced with that like the finance department then they're, they're naturally in tune to risk uh, so they're pretty hot on that so to eliminate any of those concerns just stop the computers being able to talk to each other internally the thing there ryan is before you do that make sure that you don't rely on any internal system to communicate with like a file server and if you do before you block that uh, ability, make sure you allow that to continue to communicate.
0: Man, brilliant. How important is it to implement something simple? I'm going to go through a very, very basic, but what about firewalls? Is there a spectrum of how strong a firewall can be? Is there something people could do right now with firewalls in their company?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And here's a big one. I'm glad you mentioned that because what I often see is firewalls are configured to prevent things coming in and that's all well and good. But an analogy I give is like if if you have a house party and you invite guests over, but you're worried, you're suspicious a few of them might be not be as honest as, as you would like. You're not concerned about what they come in with, right? Because it's obviously, it's usually a gift for you, a bottle of wine, like good greetings. But like, you're concerned with what they're leaving with. Are they leaving with your possessions, with your jewels, with your you know most expensive items? What I see on corporate networks is is everyone's focused on what's coming in. No one prevents things going out. And so my biggest sort of advice is for people to check that and basically limit the ability for things to talk and communicate and reach out, because that's really what matters. Like if if an attacker can get in, that's one thing, and a skilled attacker probably will. But what matters more is the ability for them to exfiltrate terabytes or gigabytes of your customer data or your intellectual property or something like that. Check that you've got your outbound firewall rules where you want them, because most of the time we see that wide open.
0: Man, thank you so much. So stricter firewalls and don't just think about the the naughty stuff coming in, but kind of the good stuff going out. Both of those yeah. are a risk for companies, investment funds, and that can be a ton of stuff. I mean, we know the breaches. I remember I'm not a cybersecurity expert, but I do remember Home Depot a few years back. They got hacked pretty hard and lost a ton of money on their valuation. I remember the Equifax where all like thousands of people's social security numbers were uh, taken. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in a company that can be taken out. And that also is important. The Brilliantly said. Thank you for that. Now, I'm wondering on a a second piece. One thing I understand about startups and when you're dealing with investors, whether you're a fund manager or a startup, you both deal with investors. There's a lot of information going back and forth. Now, for those people throughout the world that are less informed on cybersecurity matters, a lot of times they'll say, look, I'm going to send you a document. I'm going to password protect this thing. Hey, all right. All right. I'm doing my thing. We're cyber secure. Aren't we? What uh what do you guys see as far as securing documents with passwords? Is it a good idea? Is there a better way? What have you found?
1: Well, Ryan, you may not be a cybersecurity expert yet, but you're heading in that direction, is what I would say. Right. So we'll, I'll wait to uh wait to hear you do your own show on cybersecurity because <laughs> you're exactly right on passwords. How often have you seen this happen, Ryan? Someone sends you a password protected document because they really want you to look at this, you know, they really need to be careful with it and they want it to be confidential, and then they'll send you the password, either in the same email or another email, or if they're really fancy they're gonna text it to you later. Well, guess what? If I'm a hacker, and I'm not, but I know some, and I come on to your system, I'm going to look in your email and your sent files. And I'm going to actually just search for passwords and I'm going to find the document and then I'm going to find the password. And I'm going to have all of those documents that you sent with a password right there. I can open it up. Same thing on the receiving end. People receive a lot of documents that were sent that way. You know, you're going to get all the passwords and the, and the documents that way. So it is a good idea to password protect a document. However, don't send the password by uh, by email or text. Instead, we actually have a free tool because we see this happen so often and you go to adamseal.com. That's A-T-U-M-S-E-A-L.com. Put the password in there and it will generate a link that can only be opened one time. So then you copy that link and you send it. You don't send the password, you send the link and then they can open the link. The password is there. They can put it in, put it in their own secure place. That way what happens is that when a hacker comes in, finds your email, they'll just find all these useless links that they can't open and they'll have the password protected documents. So that is a big one, Ryan. And we see there's a Trade off between security and convenience. So you want to be secure, but then, hey, I got this great pitch, but I'm going to send it to this investor. The last thing I want to do is bother him or her with, well, I've got those passwords, sign into secure email, and all that. That's why we created Adam Seal. Keep it super simple. Break that trade off between security and convenience. Adam Seal is both.
0: Wow. I love that. So Adam Seal, A T U M. S-E-A-L. So like uh, sealing an em- envelope, it's kind of the same thing. So yeah, so don't, don't send the document with the password in the same email.
1: Yeah. And again, it's like the, the idea with a seal, like in the olden days, like back in the George Washington days, yeah. you would send something and you'd put your seal on it, right? And when it, and you'd send it with a courier to see if they were trusted. Now, the courier might open it, but the recipient then would know. It opened it. They tampered with it. Same idea here. Sure, somebody could intercept that link. But if they open it, and then the next time, you know, when the real recipient gets it, they'll say, Hey, I can see this has been tampered with because somebody already opened it. That's the concept behind the scenes. Wow,
0: brilliant. And what, what a great product. Thank you for that. Let's see if I can get three useful tips out of you guys. Yeah. I, I mean, we've got two. We got more than that, to be honest, out of this whole interview. But these are tactical things that people need to start thinking about implementing right now. That's what we're trying to do is to help you level up around the world. You're saying, listening to Adam Sell, this company with David and Matthew, they're giving you stuff that you can do right now to level up. And obviously, reach out to them, contact them. They'll help you to really go the full gamut, but they've been extremely generous for coming on the show and just giving us some of their wonderful wisdom. Now, that being said, that wonderful pump up and not that I've ever sent an email with a password in it, of course, only everyone else does that. I've certainly never done that, right? Wink, wink. (laughs) Yeah, Okay. So that being said, final thing on that, you know, one of the big things in managing a fund or raising capital, right? There's a very high stakes negotiation. The thing that we commonly do, whether you're a founder or a fund manager, is you set up what's called, say, a data room or a deal room, something like that. In that room, you have a ton of sensitive information banking information bios background checks financial disclosures legal documents there's all i mean and more i can keep going but you get the idea this is a one centralized place that i assume is kind of the honeypot for a lot of hackers what are some inside viewpoints or tips that you can give for people that are building data rooms but doing it with cybersecurity in mind
1: well let me introduce it and then i'll let matthew describe it so in the data room itself the first time matthew had seen a data room because he hadn't been on the financial side but more on the uh, on the cyber side he said you know we're working on due diligence. Do you know they just gave me access to everything? You know? And and I said, and I said, yeah. Did you know they always do that? Did you know that when you are are working on a deal and you you tell the banker, hey, I need a data room access for these people. And then it just and, they, and these 10 other people working with me. And they give somebody, let's say, a low-level financial analyst who's maybe doing quality of earnings work, they give them access to literally everything in the data room. And I, I Matthew assumed that it had been a mistake. So I'll just I'll tee that up to Matthew for there.
2: Absolutely. And I, I think it's really important. When I saw some of these documents, there's obviously a lot of sensitive stuff there. So I think really what applies is sort of need to know mentality. And that's easier said than done. We talked about gross liability earlier. You might even find there's some of that inside there, right? Depending on what you've collected, depending on what you're sharing. European laws, they talk about personal information, how personal is that information. So this stuff, again, it goes back to our impact mentality. If someone can take that information, do something with it. If you're doing due diligence on a technical company, you have technical due diligence documents, right? Network diagrams, all this kind of stuff. That's an attacker's goldmine, right? That takes all the homework out of it for me. I know what to attack and where. I know the people to attack. I know the people to impersonate. This is purely from the cyber side. If you look at it from the legal side of GDPR, like what information do you have? So you can basically employ a tactic, document classification, you should really do that anyway if, if you're serious about security, but basically look at stuff, like what could truly be public? The way I see this is by public, I mean, if I literally took all these documents and posted them on social media, is that okay? Right, that's to me is public. If you can do that, like your website is public, all that kind of stuff, sure. And then just really just like up the ante. Uh, we use a uh, document like DC1, DC2, document classification one, that's public. And it goes right up to uh, like restricted. So try and apply that at least theoretically. And then restrict access. So all a lot of tools, uh, data room tools or like the common cloud services that people use, they have the ability to share exactly what folders you want with who. So that's what you should do. I, what I see is, you know, I'm going to call it out for what it is. It's the lazy approach, right? It's just, you know, you click share on the root folder and you share it. I would say to people, just watch out for the risks that might impose. And for we know, we don't know, data rooms could have been the source of attacks in the past. I mean, from what I've seen, it would not surprise me at all. And another important thing as well is like when you're done, are they cleaned up? Are they removed? Is access taken away from people who had it? Do you need to keep it? If you do, maybe you want to encrypt it uh, while it's at rest on a document storage. But with security, you also need to go back and review the things you've done, the access you've given, and make sure that you revoke it.
1: Ryan, I want to mention that the data room is an area where all the jewels are are stored. But at that point, you're already conscious about security and giving access. There's a lot of things we refer to as sort of in the pre-data room process, right? Because you only get to a data room sometimes if you have an LOI assigned or maybe a little bit before that. But there's a lot of confidential documents that are exchanged ahead of time. And those documents tend to sit out there and you need to have protection for those as well. So that's where Adam Seal comes in. And that's where starting off and using a secure mechanism, like even like uh, Google Drive with access control is a way to do that. So don't forget about the pre-data room either.
0: Mm, man, that that is brilliant. There's a lot. So the easy go-to ones, Dropbox, Google Drive, iCloud. There's there's many of those like pretty retail servers that you can use. I know there's another company called Digify.com. I haven't used them, full disclaimer, but those are other ones that apparently they claim to have a little bit more stricter protocols as far as securing your data. So there are data room solutions that obviously the more secure and the more robust you have, there's obviously going to come with a small price tag to that. And then there's maybe more free uh, solutions, but like I said, uh, in, in the words of Matt here, just don't give access from the root file or don't give everybody access to everything. Learn to control that access. Is that a fair summary?
2: Yep, it is. And I would just add one more thing that I think is important for people to know. And it's, to me, security is about culture and mindset more than products and things that you buy. And, right? and it's like having that mentality and, and a key thing for anyone to do, both personally and in business, is just mind what you keep, what information you store, right? Because that is the risk right there. Like we often say to ourselves and our clients, a hacker can't hack what doesn't exist, right? If that data is not there, they can't hack it. right? It's, that's profound, right? But it's true. And so you really want to get into the mindset of just keeping a check on that. Anything that's really sensitive for me, I back up in multiple external drives that are disconnected. It's known as cold storage. So they're not constantly attached to the workstation. You would have, if you wanted this data, and my operational security mindset is saying, don't say this out loud, but I'm going to say it: is If you wanted this data, you'd have to break into my office and, and physically steal it right? Because you can't hack it. So if you have that sort of mindset, that's going to really make a massive difference. Again, you can't hack what's not there. That's just the fact.
0: That's brilliantly said.
2: Right. I know you have uh, listeners all around the
1: world and there's different uh, data protection regimes in different places. So for people in the US, they hear about GDPR. The way you usually hear about it, and this is the data protection scheme uh, in the European Union, the way you usually hear about it is a big fine against somebody like Facebook or Google uh, for violating it. There is some real logic to it. Uh, which is that collect the minimum amount of information. You know, we have the mentality, especially in the U.S., there's a lot of consumer data. I'm going to collect all the browsing data. I'm going to collect all the data that anybody is, is sharing with me in any form, and I'm going to keep it forever, and I'm going to use it for analysis, or I don't know what I'm going to use it for, but I'm going to keep it. Well, a hacker can get in. They can breach that data. And then how are you going to feel, and how's your reputation going to take a hit? When gee, people that just actually applied, let's say for cell phone service and didn't even go with you, their information is, is hacked and it's out there. So you want to have the minimum amount of information. A good way to start with that is when you're founding a company, you put in data privacy by design, minimum collection of data by design, started off early rather than years later trying to go back and t- to deal with it. So minimum amount of data collected. It's a different mentality.
0: Yeah, brilliantly said. So as we wrap things up, is there any last minute things, anything you want uh, our listeners to know or ways to contact you, anything at all?
1: For sure. So I would say, you know, I know we, we said this is the Making Billions podcast. I, I think the way you're going, and plus with a little bit of inflation, before we know it, it's going to be making trillions. <laughs> so people, you might want to reserve that uh, that bookmark if you, if you haven't done. Uh, speaking of bookmark, I mentioned already Adam Seal, dot com, where you can generate those one-time links with the passwords. But we also uh, do this Hackers Perspective scan that Matthew was talking about early on. And, and that's a way for an organization to find out, hey, what can a hacker see about you? And the truth is, if anybody in, in uh, network security is out there, anytime you plug something into the internet, you put it online, you're going to get a lot of people looking in. Let's say people from Russia, China, North Korea, and, and elsewhere. They actually have similar scanners to what we have. The difference is they don't tell you what they found. They just act on it. We'll tell you. So we've actually set up a, a special link uh, just for the Making Billions listeners. And if you go to adamsell.com billions, that's A-T- umcel slash billions. We have an opportunity. You can get a free scan. You just put in your URL, do a free scan for you, and we'll show you what a hacker could see about you. So that was the way that I would say, if you want to contact us, you can also uh, look for us on LinkedIn with, at Adam Cell, or you can send an email. The easiest way to do that, send an email to me. That's D at adamcell.com or Matthew M at adamsell.com.
0: Perfect. So improving settings in your network, getting stricter firewalls, implementing Adam Seal to protect your documents, control access to your data rooms only to people that need it. And finally, we said, just collect the minimum amount of information and delete it when it's no longer needed. You do these things and you too will be well on your way in your pursuit of making billions. Wow, what a show. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Now, if you haven't done so already, be sure to leave a comment and review on new ideas and guests you want me to bring on for future episodes. Plus, why don't you head over to YouTube and see extra takes while you get to know our guests even better. And make sure to come back for our next episode where we dive even deeper into the people, the process, and the perspectives of both investors and founders. Until then, my friends, stay hungry, focus on your goals, and keep grinding towards your dream of making billions.